0: Well, welcome once again. Uh, We're going to continue in our worship uh, by turning to our scripture uh, passage this morning. We're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark and continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Just going to get my notes. It's a little tricky that keep everything from blowing away, but we'll do our best. I have clips. As we move through the gospel of Mark we're coming to uh uh the cross rather quickly. I this is how the gospel of Mark is. I, I mean, I don't know about you, we've been preaching on this gospel for a while, but it seems to me that we're we're quickly rushing uh to that final moments of Jesus that the cross. And that's what Mark wants us to do. He wants to get to the cross. He wants to show us Jesus and the wonders of his grace in and through his death and resurrection. But even as Jesus begins to zero in on his mission, which is the cross, he's continuing to teach and instruct his disciples. And we have that here in our text this morning. Um, It includes both teaching, object lesson, spoken teaching, as well as action, messianic action. And we'll we'll look at all of these in, in turn. And they're all sort of wrapped up together. Um, Jesus was continuing the process of revealing to his disciples, uh, not only his disciples, but to Jerusalem and, and the world, that he was, in fact, the Messiah. So with that, I want to turn to the text. We're going to look at the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 12 uh, to 25. Mark eleven, twelve to 25. Hear God's word. On the following day, that was the day after of the triumphal entry, on the following day when they came from Bethany, that's where they were staying, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. As challenging as it is sometimes to understand, we know that you have revealed it to us that we might know your salvation and grace. And so help us this day to see that. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes it happens that we come across a text like this that, takes a little bit of digging and explanation. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but as you read some of these verses, you probably kind of thought, what What does that mean? Why is Jesus cursing a tree? Or what does it mean when he says, if you have faith that can move a mountain? What does that mean? There's a lot of challenging things in this text. Um, and I think it's one of those texts that's easier to perceive as we take a step back from it, right? So if we look at it from a sort of a broader perspective, it's like sometimes when you're hiking on a trail, you know, you're on the trail going through the woods and you kind of lose your orientation, right? You don't really have a great sense, but you keep following that trail. You see the blazes and you're like, am I going north? Am I going south? Is this heading in the right direction? I'll just keep following these blazes, but you're kind of You're kind of confused, a little bit lost, but then you get up to the mountain's height, right? You look down from the height and you can get a perspective and you can say, oh, I get it. I see like that 10,000 foot view that you get. Well, in this text, it's difficult and I think it's helpful for us to take a step back. And I'm going to just say this at the outset. I think there's a general outline to the text that is fairly uh, easy to understand. And that is Jesus judges a tree for its fruitlessness. It's the first section. Jesus then enters the temple and judges the religious leaders for their turning God's house of prayer into a den of thieves or den of robbers, thus showing their fruit f- fruitlessness. And then as they're, as they're wondering at the withered tree the next day, that they passed that tree that he had cursed, Jesus calls his disciples, to faith-filled, fruitful prayer, right? Fruit-bearing prayer, faith-filled, fruit-bearing prayer. So as they're wondering at the withered tree, he's calling them to that. So that's kind of like the 10,000-foot view. We can kind of see that outline or that structure. But as soon as we descend from that height, all of a sudden we lose our orientation again. So I think there's one key theme that as we go into the, the depths of the forest, so to speak, there's one key theme and one question that I want to keep in our minds. Okay. So the first is the key theme is that Jesus is the king. Right? Last week, we looked at the triumphal entry. Here, King Jesus was coming into uh, Jerusalem as the messianic king. So I want us to keep this in our mind. The key theme Is the kingship and authority and power and rule of Jesus? And then I also want us to ask a question as we walk through this, an application question that we need to ask ourselves. Okay, we're thinking about God and his Christ and his kingship, but this is the question, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for me to be a part of that kingdom and to be under the rule of the king? right what does it mean for me to be a citizen of the kingdom of god and to be under that rule right so that's the sort of the aim the question i want us to ask and not just what does it mean for me to be under the the rule of the king but also what does it mean for me to rebel against the king what does that look like so that's that's it i want us to keep those two things in our minds Consider the king, and what does it mean to be under the king's rule or not? And we'll look at it in three pieces. The first piece that we're going to look at is the judgment of the king. The second thing we'll look at is the will of the king. And the third thing we're going to look at is the power and love of the king, all the time asking that same application question throughout. So that's where we're going. First, the judgment of the king. So, we're entering the dense forest, but really it's not a forest at all. It is a cultivated hillside surrounding Jerusalem, full of date trees and fig trees and olive trees. Bethany uh, was a town located on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. Well, remember, Jesus spent some time teaching from the Mount of Olives. We call it the Olivet Discourse. And this mountain was on the east side of Jerusalem, and the, the, the city or the town, a small town really of Bethany, was on the eastern slope. And so they had to go up the mountain and then down the mountain into Jerusalem and then really back up a little bit of a hill to uh, the temple. So that's, that's the journey that we see in our text. And on that Mount of Olives is just what it sounds like, kind of an orchard except without apples, I guess, if we think of orchard. But it's a, it's a tree uh, orchard with figs and the like. So that's that's where where the disciples are at. And what we see in our text is that Jesus, being hungry, approaches a tree in search of figs. It's a tree with leaves. It's a tree that has the sign of life. And yet there were no figs on it. Why were there no figs? Well, the text tells us there were no figs in this on this tree because it wasn't the season for figs. Right? Now we've entered a thicket. What in the world? This seems entirely out of accord with the character of Jesus. He should have known better than to look for figs on a tree that is out of season. What is he thinking? And why would he be so upset? Is he hangry? Is this just like the the grumbly hunger coming out? Right? Like, I want food, and now this tree doesn't give me what I want, so curse that tree. Okay, so here's where we have to remember our key idea. He's the king, okay? We have to keep that in the back of our minds at all times. Jesus is the king, and as the king... He is going to Jerusalem with a single purpose, and that purpose is to establish his kingdom. Okay, so how does that clear up this thicket? Well, first, we must not be tempted to think that our Lord Jesus, the King of heaven and earth, the holy and righteous Son of God, could in any way, shape, or form sin. So, I think that's my first idea. So whatever Jesus is doing and saying here, we must maintain his glory and his righteousness as the king of kings and as the Lord of lords. In other words, his hunger cannot be the cause of the curse. Remember, Jesus uh, was, when he was, after he was baptized, went off into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And while he was there, the evil one tempted him. He said, why don't you take this rock and turn it into bread and eat? Because you know you're hungry, right? You can do this. You are indeed the king of kings. And what is Jesus' response to the evil one? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If he was able to maintain his fast during 40 days in the wilderness with an eye towards God, his provider, how much more likely is it here that he would not be angry because of the fruitlessness of this tree, right? Okay, so, so I'm going to just set that aside. We can, I, I think that we can't say that he was angry in that sense. Now, he was angry, and we'll get to the reason why he was angry, but it wasn't the tree per se, right? He is hungry, but hunger isn't the reason for the curse. His hunger was simply the occasion to examine the tree. So that if it's not hunger, what, what, why did he curse the tree? Key point, he is the king. That's why. Jesus had looked around at the temple. Do you remember that? At the end of last week's text, He goes to the temple after he enters Jerusalem, and he looks around at the temple. And what did he see when he looks around? The text doesn't tell us at that point, but we know from our text this morning, what does he see when he looks at the temple? He looked around at the temple the day before, and what he saw no doubt grieved him and angered him. He saw the religious leaders, those men to be fruitful and full of faith, turning God's house of prayer Into a den of thieves. And we're going to look more specifically at that act by Jesus in just a minute. But right here, what I want us to see is that before the king goes back to the Temple Mount to deal with the situation, he is setting before his disciples a picture of his authority and of his judgment. He is the king who is the judge of heaven and earth. The tree was a symbol of Israel. And, and, and Jesus didn't just draw this illustration from nowhere, actually. He took this opportunity, but he drew the illustration straight out of the Old Testament. If we were to look back in the Old Testament prophets from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Joel and Habakkuk, they all liken sinful Israel to a fruitless fig tree. All of them. And in each of these prophets, the prophet brings a word of judgment from the king. The prophet is saying to Israel, you are like a fruitless fig tree. That is why I'm bringing about judgment on you. To faithless Israel. Here is this flourishing tree that looked as though it should have fruit full of leaves. And yet it was fruitless. And Jesus, the king of kings, comes and he judges the fruitless tree as a symbol of his divine authority. Okay, king, we've got that theme down here. But what does it mean for you and me to be under the king's authority and judgment? What does it mean for us to find ourselves under the king's authority and judgment? First of all it means there's no hiding. There's no pretending. There's nothing that can fool him. Those religious leaders from the out from those religious leaders from the outside perspective were righteous, right? They were the religious elites. People looked to them as the example of what it means to be of faith. But Jesus will talk to them elsewhere in the Gospels, and he will call them white-washed tombs. Fruitless trees. You see, the king looks at our hearts and at our lives, and he sees us as we really are. We are laid bare before him. It's like Adam and Eve in the garden. That's how we are often, right? We sin, and then we hide. We all do it. We sin, and then we hide. God came to the garden. Oh, Adam and Eve... Where are you? It wasn't that he didn't know where they were. But he wanted them to know that he knew that they were trying to hide. Friends, you know your own heart. The king knows your own heart. He's the one who judges all things. We want to think of Jesus, the one who comes into Jerusalem in terms of his great sacrifice of love. We don't often consider that this same king is the judge of heaven and earth. Paul says in Romans, he quotes in Romans, that no one is righteous, no not one. And as we consider the reality that Christ is king and judge, who judges all with authority, as all the deeds are exposed, as our righteousness, our our self-righteousness gets exposed as being of filthy rags, we ought to cry out to this king, Lord, have mercy on me. That's the response. I want to think more about how we respond at the very end of the sermon. But for right now, I just want us to consider that the Lord is king, who is judge over heaven and earth, and all is laid bare before him. All our righteousness is a filthy rag, self-righteousness. Well, the cursing the tree was a symbol, but his clearing of the temple was the exercise of that authority and the determined will of God. So second, I want to look at the will of the king. Jesus and his disciples head on to Jerusalem and to the temple. And the text says that when they get there, he started to drive out those who sold and those who bought, overturning tables of money changers and the tables of those who sold pigeons. It's hard for us to picture this, right? Uh, We don't live in a world uh, quite like this, where there's this temple and... Thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands and even millions of people stream into this city, especially at a time like this, with the Passover. It's a huge festival. A city like Jerusalem would according to scholars, would have about a hundred thousand or so people in it. But on a holy day like Passover, the numbers would swell to three million. Can you imagine, and what is their goal? The goal of this three million is to go to the temple and to offer sacrifices and to worship the living God. And of course, there's going to be commerce associated with that, right? Commerce isn't necessarily a bad thing. This is just how it has to be. You have, you need to make sacrifices. People need to have things to sacrifice. People need places to say and food to eat. There's going to be commerce and a giant uh, influx like that where they're trying to make this whole thing work. So what's the particular thing that is sinful that's going on here in the temple? Well, there's a couple things. The first thing I'd like to note is that I think it was happening in the court of the Gentiles, okay? So this money changing, this selling of of uh of of pigeons and other animals for sacrifice, was happening in the court of the Gentiles. Now, why is that significant? Or why do I think that's the case? Well, there's two things. I'll start with why I think that's the case. And it comes from the text. Jesus, when he says, he, he teaches them after clearing the temple, he says, Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? So that's the first sort of indicator. Okay, what is this talking about for all the nations? It's a quote from Isaiah, but there's something else. We have historical record of this actually taking place in the court of the Gentiles. Um, so it's, it, the Jewish writers also acknowledge that this was the place where they would set up the commerce. Now, why is, it, why is that such a problem? What does it mean for the Gentiles who come seeking the Lord? What does it mean for the outsider who's coming in who doesn't have access to the temple who can't go into the inner courts because he's unclean, because he's a God-fearer, but he's not a Jew. He doesn't have access to those sacrificial systems. What does it mean that he comes to this court and it's filled with commerce? It means there's nowhere for him to pray. He's pressed out. The outsider is not welcome. It's It's a sign saying, We don't care about the Gentiles. What we care about is people coming and offering their sacrifices who are Jewish. We don't care about all those promises in the Old Testament about the the nations coming to God. What we care about is ourselves. So that's one thing. That's one reason why this was a problem. Second thing is that there was money changers taking advantage of people. They had a particular... A coin, a shekel uh, that they used um for all their temple transactions, and so, in order to give those temple transactions, they had to change whatever money that they had, Roman money or whatever it was, into this shekel and in that process of changing the money, well it's an opportunity right it's an opportunity to get more to fill the coffers, so to speak, not unlike those sales of indulgences that happened uh back in uh, the Middle Ages. Another wicked thing. And then finally, he not only turned over the the money-changing table, but he also turned over the table of the pigeon seller. Why pigeon seller? Why wasn't it the, the, the sheep seller or the cow seller or some other... Why the pigeon seller? Why is that highlighted here? Well, the pigeon was the sacrifice for those who couldn't afford the greater animals. And so what's indicated here is that here, not only are they exchanging money and taking advantage of people, but they're particularly taking advantage of the poor. So they've pushed out the Gentiles. They've taken a greater amount of money than would, than they should have in the exchange For money, and on top of that, they were taking advantage of the poor. Fundamental to Jesus' indignation and judgment is that this is not what the temple is for. Not only is it being used for wickedness, but this is supposed to be positively a place of prayer, a place where the peoples come and seek God. It's not to be a place of commerce. So what is Jesus doing? He's restoring his house to a house of prayer. And he's fulfilling the promises given in Isaiah. This is Isaiah 56. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. for all, the poor, the outsider. You see, the king had come to establish his kingdom, to bring heaven to earth. This is the answer to the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray when he said, pray thus, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus cleanses the temple as both a sign of judgment against faithless Israel, but it's also his work of establishing his kingdom that will be for all people. All people. His will is being done. And as we think about our question, King Jesus coming to establish his kingdom is affecting his will. He's cleaning the temple, that house of prayer. He's reestablishing it. We have to ask the question, what does it mean for us to be under the king's rule and for his kingdom to be established and his will to be done? What does it mean? I want to come up with two applications. Two applications. One is that the establishment of his kingdom is... Certain. It's certain. As we look on a world that is in rebellion against the King, as we look into our own hearts that willfully rebel against Him, we ought not to miss this. The Lord Jesus accomplishes all that He sets out to do. And what is He doing? Well, he's restoring the house of prayer, the place where God's people meet. For us, that should be great comfort. Despite what the world seems like, despite how out of control it is, and despite how rebellious our hearts are, the king is accomplishing his purpose, and he's making himself, he's making for himself a people, a temple, a dwelling place, a place where the nations will come. His church is going out across the lands and all tribes, tongues, and nations are coming to him. Put put more simply, put more plainly, he is shaping us, the church, into his abode, a house of prayer. That should be great comfort to us. But there's a second and more personal thing here. I think as we look at our hearts, we can be overcome by the corruption that we see in it. Yet we're told in God's Word that we are the temple of the living God. Christ dwells in you. He dwells in me by faith, through His Holy Spirit. And what is that Spirit doing He's accomplishing the will of the king. He's accomplishing his purposes. He's leaving no table in our hearts unturned. He's disrupting it. He's transforming it. He's making it into a heart that beats for Christ, that prays to Christ, that loves Christ. And that's great comfort to us knowing that the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts, transforming us into the abode of Christ. (laughs) There are two types of responses to the intrusion of the king. Remember, he comes to judge and to save. That's what he he came to do. He came to judge and to save. Of course, the, the miracle and wonder of the cross is that judgment was poured out on him and salvation came to those who believe. But there is this reality that the king is coming again to judge the heavens and the earth. And there are two responses that we can have. We can have the response of the religious leaders. And what what is their response in the text? To plot against the king, to rebel against him, to turn against him. To walk away from him, to push him away, to say, I don't want your intrusion, but Jesus is saying, Well, you you don't get away with it. I'm gonna my kingdom is coming. My will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. And you have basically two choices kiss the Son or perish in his way. The other response, of course, is to surrender by faith. It's to say, come Jesus, do that work in my heart. Cleanse me, change me, transform me. Make me new. Accomplish your work of mercy by making me a dwelling place of the Most High. A place of prayer. Which brings me to my final point and conclusion. The power and love of the king. Jesus and his disciples go back to Bethany. They go back up Mount Olives, they go back down the other side, stay in their house, and wake up the next morning. And they're passing by again on Mount uh, of Olives and they see the tree withered to the root, dead. Peter's like, Hey, that's the tree you cursed yesterday. Look at it. And we might think that Jesus' response would be, Yes, and that will be anyone who gets in the way of the king who refuses to bow before the king. But that's not what Jesus says here. He showed that in the temple. He cleared the temple as a sign of that very judgment that's to come. But here, when his disciples ask him the meaning, it's very different. Hear what Jesus says. It says, Rabbi, Peter says, Rabbi, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in god first things have faith in god well seems obvious of course but what is Jesus point here he's saying have faith that the king reigns on high that he is the sovereign one who rules and judges have faith that he has the power to make this tree wither to bring judgment on israel but he has the power to save Have faith in God. And then we have this really enigmatic statement. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now i want to say at the outset that this this verse has been used by many in, in a way that I think does great damage. It's used by many who think, well, if I just muster up enough faith, then I can get whatever I need, whatever I want. God will bless me with it if I just muster up enough faith. What happens? The sickness doesn't go away. The job doesn't come. And the person is left with two choices. They can either say, the problem is with me. I don't have enough faith. If I just, I need to will myself even more, and they beat themselves to have more and greater faith. Or the other option is despair, to walk away from the Lord. This passage has been used to that extent, and I, and I just want to say it, it is it is a blight because what it does is it puts the onus on us. It puts the, the the power in us. it says it's all about you and what you're able to accomplish rather than saying, "Who is this king, this great God who has the power to make this tree wither?" now, okay, God is the one with the power. but what is this about moving mountains? Okay it's a little confusing. But it's actually a reference to the Old Testament. There's a bunch of passages in in the Old Testament, in the prophets particularly, that talk about mountains being made low and valleys being raised up, and a highway being made as a path, a a a sort of for the king to come and for his host to come with him, his army, his people. Right. So the the, the valleys being raised up and the the mountains being made low but there's a particular a particular prophecy about the mount of olives that says the mount of olives will be split in two and it'll be flattened it'll be transformed and in that prophecy i think it was pointing to this truth that the king of glory was coming and that he would split the mountain and make this path and that the king would ride into Jerusalem with his, with his mighty host and establish the kingdom. And so when Jesus says that they pray that they can move mountains, he's asking that they pray for the establishment of God's kingdom. Jesus taught his disciples to pray these words, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When he's encouraging them to faith, he's saying, don't be like the religious leaders who think it's about them, who think it's about their power and their strength and their righteousness, but put your faith in God and cry out to him, for his kingdom to come, for these mountains to be made low and these valleys to be raised up and for the king of glory to come in. And it will happen because that's what I'm about. I've come to bring salvation. I've come to show my power. So what does it mean for us? Go back, we're seeing the king, but what does it mean for us? Friends, prayer is the posture of faith and trust that God is king. That he is the ruler, that he is the one who establishes his kingdom, that he is the one who has all power and authority and judgment and mercy and grace. That he is the one that can transform hearts, that can establish his kingdom. He is the one who is the only one who could break the very power of sin and death. that could make the mountains flat and the valleys raised, and to create that highway that brings us along with him in his train to his glorious kingdom as his worshipers, as those redeemed. And this is the mystery. The Lord uses the instrument of our weak prayers to display his plow power and glory. What an amazing truth. Every time we get on our knees. Every time we pray. Every time we lift up Christ as king and say, Lord, may your kingdom come and your will be done. Lord, in this situation, in this situation, in this situation, what we're doing is he is saying, I will use you. Weak vessel that you are full of brokenness and sin, I will use you to display my power and might and glory. Friends, what an amazing privilege it is for us to pray, to go to the Lord, the King of glory, and to lift our requests, because it's in that power, not in our own strength, but in the power of God in prayer, that the King of glory and the kingdom of God is made known and revealed. Finally, I'm going to close by thinking about the cross. Jesus himself, the night before he was to go to his death, also got on his knees and prayed. He didn't want to. The pain of the cross was more than he wanted to bear. He says, Lord, let this cup pass by. But what else did he say? Your will be done. And Jesus Christ, the King of glory, went and displayed the wonders of his power, authority, judgment, Mercy and grace as he hung on the cross, the King of glory, giving himself up. He was thrown into the sea, made low, that we might know the wonders of his grace and be called children. Not just members of the kingdom, but children of the Most High. All praise be to Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father,